Perhaps you've heard before that if you try to understand the Trinity, you will lose your mind. If you deny the Trinity, you will lose your soul. I've said it numerous times. I'm pretty sure Augustine is the one who deserves credit for saying that or something like it. If you try to understand the Trinity in a comprehensive sense, if you try to understand the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. But if you deny the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. If that's things, it tells us that the, that the Trinity is really important. It's a really important Christian doctrine that there is one true living God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, always has, does now, and always will. It's really important. But it also tells us that it's challenging. It's hard to comprehend. It's hard to understand, I should say. And so what I'd like to do this morning is talk about the Christian, the classic Christian doctrine, the classic Christian teaching uh, we call Trinitarianism, or to put it in more personal terms, our triune God, our as in the Christian triune God. And so before me, I have a list of motivations. I have 10 motivations. I'm not a motivational speaker. I don't play one on television. I don't want to be one, but as a Christian pastor, I want to look at motivating passages from the Bible to hopefully move you to the edge of your seat to learn more about our great triune God. So 10 motivations from the Bible to motivate you to learn more about our great triune God. That's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, that means we're not going to be in our current series on the book of Acts. So if you're just joining us, glad you're here. Uh, we're right now studying the book of Acts. We sh- should be in chapter 5. We won't be. The Trinity is in the book of Acts, um, but we're not going to be looking at the book of Acts this morning. We're going to do something different. Uh, I'm working on a project on the Trinity as far as teaching, studying, preparation. So it's on my mind. It's in my heart. It's stirring me. Uh, and so I thought it would be a good idea to talk about the great reality of the Trinity today. So that's what we're doing. I have a couple qualifiers. Uh, first of all, uh, I'll have to say that as we do this, we're going to go super fast at times. And I like you to look up the verses we're looking at, but I'm going to go so fast sometimes uh, that unless you have superpowers, uh, I'm going to leave you behind. Um, If you want to try, go for it. Awesome. Um, I'll slow down eventually, and we'll look at some passages. The first passage, I think, is going to be Psalm 48. So if you want to find Psalm 48, it makes me nervous when people in churches don't have Bibles open. Um, I think it's a good good thing to be nervous that way. So we'll look at Psalm 48, but we're going to be in Revelation 4. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 6. We're going to be in Matthew 22. We're going to be in First Chronicles. We're going to be all over the place looking at the great reality that is our God, the Christian God. That's the first qualifier. The second qualifier is going to be And this is a weird one. I've never done this before. I'm not going to preach from the translation I normally preach from. So I've been preaching from the ESV translation for a number of years now, um, the English Standard Version, and I'm not going to be preaching from that version today. I'm going to preach from an older version. Uh, We had a contest first hour, so if you can figure out which translation I'm using, there's a prize. Um, I didn't think anybody would actually want the prize, but I had a teenage young woman come to me asking for the prize because she knew the answer, so I had to take her to the bookstore and let her buy something. So, (laughs) be careful what you promise. 
So it's because the project I'm working on is tied to a certain translation. I am not going to change. I'm going to keep using the ESV until the foreseeable future. Um, but just so you're aware, I'm going to use a different translation today. It might even help you if you're using the ESV, which we normally use around here, to, to see the differences and similarities. It's going to be very, very similar. Have you found Psalm 48 yet? Hope you're ready to be motivated. Ten motivators to study and learn about the Christian God, the triune God, and that's going to get you nice and motivated. And then we actually will do another message on this because there's going to be more to learn about how do we explain the Trinity, what the Trinity is, what the Trinity isn't, and all that kind of stuff. So it won't just be a one-parter. But we're going to do ten of these today. I hope you're ready. Motivation number one for learning about the Trinity, and that's because there is nothing greater to learn about. There's nothing greater to learn about. We could say there's no one greater, and that would be true. There's no one greater to learn about, but there's nothing greater to learn about than God, the one true and living God. If you're looking for something better than that today to learn about, I got nothing for you, and you're looking for something wrong. Okay? There are a lot of great things in life. There are great meals. There are great relationships. There are great legacies. There are great workouts. I mean, there's so many great things you could think about right now. There are great vacations. There is the Great Wall. Uh, there's the Great War. Uh, there are the Great Lakes, where I hope to go on a great vacation sometime soon because I've never been. We're talking about it. Anybody been to the Great Lakes? I've never been. Lake Superior, the largest freshwater lake in the world, the greatest one. How about that? I've read that if the Empire State Building were in Lake Superior, the only thing you would see with the waves lapping up against it would be the antenna. I don't know if that's gospel truth or not, but I read it. I've mentioned all of these great things, somewhat to be lighthearted, but to say the greatest thing you could ever imagine, okay, the Great Lakes, the, the great, great relationships, a great marriage, a great friendship, all of the, all those things are ridiculous in comparison with God. We're talking about the one true and living God who always has been God, who was and is and who is to come, the Almighty, as the Bible says. There, there's no greater topic, there's no greater subject. And that motivates me. We're going to talk about God. What did you talk about at church today? We talked about God. Well, we only talked about parenting. Yeah, by comparison, it's ridiculous. We're talking about the greatest topic ever imaginable. And it's sad that we're shocked when we come to church and they talk about theology. The study of God, of all things. Let's get motivated is what I have to say to that. Psalm 48, verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Psalm 96, 4. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Psalm 145, 3. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. And His greatness is unsearchable. First Chronicles 16.25, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. And the great God does great things. Great subject matter. Psalm 86.10, For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Job 5, 8 and 9, but as for me, I would seek God and I would place my cause before God who does great and unsearchable things, wonders beyond number. 
Isaiah 40, verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. What a word. It's no wonder the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, Romans eleven thirty three to 36, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who became His counselor? No one. Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? No one. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. What's the last word? Welcome to Omaha Baptist Church. It's amen. You say, that's right. This is good. This is great. This is agreeable. I agree. There's no greater subject matter. That that makes me motivated. Let's learn more about Trinitarianism. Pastor, I'm ready for the next sermon. I, I only need one motivation. I hope is how you're thinking if you're thinking sanely, Christianly. A second motivation for learning about the Trinity is that He is Holy. He is holy. Countless saints have boasted in song. We've done it so many times here at Omaha Bible Church, but we've joined so many others. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. And it's for good reason that countless to the human eye, Christians, churches, congregations have shared those great words because it's heavenly. It's, that's, that's heavenly imitation. That's what happens when we, when we see what happens in heaven. Heavenly worship says a similar kind of thing. Listen, listen to this. This is Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Heavenly praise. And the four living creatures, angelic beings, each one of them having six wings are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, so it's incessant, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Extraordinary. Here's my question for you but what does it mean? What does it mean for God to be holy? I ask all the time. I ask all the time. I'm going to keep asking because as one teacher told me, they're going to forget 90% of what you tell them. So emphasize the 10%, 90% of the time. So what does holy mean? Well, holy, maybe if you said, well, it means sinless, I'll let you stay in the class. Uh, but not, not, not actually. It is true if God is holy uh, and it's true God is sinless. But really, the word doesn't mean sinless. The word means different. It means distinct. That's why sometimes we define it as separate. That's not a bad definition. But I like to push the envelope a little bit to get you to think. We could even, in our words, translate it weird. Maybe not weird. That sounds... How about strange? Different. Creator, creature. Different, different, different. It would sound kind of strange if we sang the hymn. Strange, strange, strange is the Lord God Almighty. Visitors would think, what? They're already thinking that now because I'm saying this. But sometimes it helps to stop and think, what does this mean? It means he's different. He's distinct. He's not like us. Oh, maybe he's worthy of worship, but now I'm getting ahead of myself. He's not like us. 
in so many different ways that moves me to say, tell me more. I want to know more. He's unique. He's extraordinary. He's not one in a million. He's the Holy One. I want to know more about the Holy One. Holy, holy, holy. And surely the angelic intention isn't to emphasize the fact that He is thrice holy, three times, because they don't cease. Wow. I want to move on here in just a moment, but... Theologians, careful theologians, even acknowledge in His holiness, and I think we should as well, that if He is holy, 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 different, 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 we, we, if we're really digging in, and we'll do this in the days ahead, we probably should even be careful about the way we speak about Him. Matthew Barrett, who's written a helpful book called Simply Trinity, he was here in the fall, made this observation. Let's not forget that whatever words are used of God, even scriptural Bible words are, scriptural words and metaphors, this is God we have in view. Infinite and eternal, immutable, unchangeable and everlasting languages by definition. He uses an important technical word, analogical. Because God is holy, He's different. Wow, I think he's right. Well, maybe we'll come back to that on a different day. But for now, motivation number three. Motivation number three for studying the, tr- the, the triune God, our triune God. Number three, the greatest commandment requires it. The greatest commandment requires it. Now, what's the greatest commandment? Well, the great, let me ask you in a different way. Where would you find the greatest commandment in the Bible? Well, some of you are going to say from Jesus. And if you go to Matthew 22, which you can do if you'd like, we'll hear Jesus talk about the greatest commandment. We could go to Luke's gospel account. But others of you uh, think more Old Testament-like. And you're thinking, starts with a D, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6. And you would both be right, not because we're postmodern, but because when Jesus references the greatest commandment, he's referencing Deuteronomy 6. The greatest commandment calls that calls for us knowing who God is. And so if you have a Bible, you can look at either passage. I'm going to quote Matthew. Then I'm going to allow Matthew to be expanded by looking at Deuteronomy. But if we're going to have the greatest commandment, we must know about God's triunity. Oh, I, I guess I should stop and ask you before we get there. What is the greatest commandment? It's to love God a certain way. That's the greatest commandment. And we're going to see that you can't love God if you don't know who He is. Okay, how about this? Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Verse 37, and He, Jesus said to Him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And for right now, this morning at least, I want to emphasize all of your mind. It's a mentally engaged reality to love God with your mind. Verse 38 then says, this is the great and foremost commandment. So contrary to popular, even pop evangelical opinion, you can't love God. You can't even do the greatest or most basic commandment if you don't know who God is. Now, Deuteronomy 6. Jesus doesn't have to unpack all of it because he assumes his Jewish audience understands it. 
but maybe we don't. So Deuteronomy 6 is a classic. It is the greatest commandment as it is in the Old Testament. And it's helpful for us to see the greatest commandment there and in the new so that we can understand it appropriately. How are you guys doing? Some of you look so motivated you're about ready to fall off your chairs. So the goal by the end of the service is to have you just be more and more intrigued and excited. And I'm going to say now we're ready to learn about our great triune God. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Here, it's called the Shema or the Shema. I think in English it comes over as S-H-E-M-A. Now listen up. This is the most important thing you're ever going to hear is the idea. So little kids would learn this from the point where they could learn, maybe before, all the way to grandparenthood. The Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. So one God. You shall, here's the implication. The implication is fascinating. So he's saying essentially he's the same thing that Jesus is talking about. But verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with, notice, all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And you might be thinking, then why does Jesus say all your mind? Because you can say it either way and they mean the same thing. You can either go abbreviated version or you could just keep going. The idea is you, you love God with all of your being. Sometimes we say all of your faculties, including your motives. If there's one God and he's the creator sovereign and we're the creatures, there's, there's one right response and that's to acknowledge him as the God that he is and to give him the appropriate love. How can we do the greatest commandment if we don't even know who he is? We can't. We can't. But do notice the logic. I love the logic of four and five together. Notice one God, and then he says, all, all, and all. If there's one God, you, you treat him as if he's the only God, worthy of your love. If there were two gods, let's just go hypothetical. Should be a 50-50 split if they're equally powerful and strong and knowledgeable. If there are 330,000 gods... You probably should split it 330,000 ways. He's being logical. There's only one God. Monotheism is true. And so you've got to give him all of your love appropriate for God. It's fascinating. And if God is the one true living God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we're to love him with our minds... We better know something about Trinitarianism or we actually can't love him with our minds. That's all. If God is triune, how does that influence your love of him? How does it influence your thinking? Do you think like a Unitarian? I hope not. I'm afraid lots of Christians do. Do you think like a pantheist? I hope not. I'm afraid lots of Christians do. We want to think like Trinitarians, like all Christians have been. And if you're thinking, you know what, I, I don't really understand what you're talking about very much. I'm getting some of it. But you know what? I actually don't know how to think like a Trinitarian. You've come to the right place. I want to try to help everybody. 
So we're going to get into it some today. We already have, but we will in the days ahead as well. Number four, fourth motivation for learning about the Trinity, and that is worship. This is related to number three. Worship requires true knowledge. Worship, that is true worship, authentic God-accepting worship, requires true knowledge. We're going to look at John chapter 4, where Jesus talks about this. Worship requires true knowledge. Now, singing emotional songs doesn't require true knowledge. Oftentimes, singing emotional songs doesn't require any knowledge. But then, again, it wouldn't count as true Christian worship. Worship is where you're seeing God for who He is and responding appropriately. Oh, and we could add to it, what he, you're seeing God for what He does and you respond appropriately. You see His worthiness. And, and you praise to use a synonym. You, you adore to use another synonym that overlaps. You worship Him because you see His worthiness because of who He is and what He's done. We're talking about the who He is right now. He's the triune God. And how can, if that's true, how can we actually legitimately worship Him if we actually don't understand that? John chapter 4 is the text. John 4, Jesus, I hope you're ready to duck. Um, there, this is, if you were standing close here, figuratively speaking, you, you duck. John chapter 4, verse 22. This is, this is Jesus being blunt, honest, maybe abrasive. Um, I don't know. Verse 22 says, John chapter 4, you, he's speaking to the Samaritan woman. You worship what you do not know. Oh, what a compliment. <laughs> You're reading it wrong. <laughs> you worship, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. It's not real worship. You, you, you don't accept all of the Bible to be true, you Samaritans. And I want you to know that that, 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 dis, that disqualifies your worship as true worship. So Jesus is very blunt. He's speaking the truth. Perfect motives, no doubt. Don't get me wrong. You worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. He's not saying all the Jews are right, but they've got the right book and at least the right take on the right book that you've got to understand the one true and living God. Then it says in verse 23, but an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. I think some of that has reference to the temple and its destruction regarding the spirit, but we're not going to get into that right now. I just want you to see worship in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Notice the last part in verse 24. If you're going to worship and have it be legitimate worship, it wasn't like the Samaritans didn't claim to worship. They claimed to worship, but Jesus says it's not real worship. If you want to worship God, you got to know something about Him that's true. Let's understand who He is if He's the one true eternal God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We want to know that. We definitely want to know that. Another text that I'll just go to ever so quickly, and that is Romans chapter 1, verse 25. And I want, I want, to, I want to turn this verse upside down and have it make sense, which sounds really weird, I know, but I think you'll, you'll buy in if you hear what I'm going to say. Romans 1, when, when you think of Romans 1, you think of good worship or bad worship. You think of bad worship, okay? Romans 1 says, verse 25, for they, this is unbelievers, exchanged the truth of God 
for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. So, they take the truth and they replace it with a lie and then their worship is idolatrous worship. They're still worshiping, but it's bad worship. So if we turn that around to see it from its positive, which I think we can do, if you have the truth and you don't exchange it, you might be qualified for true worship. Acknowledging God for who He really is. Acknowledging His worthiness. One person put it this way, apart from the knowledge of God as Trinity, only the bare and empty name of God flits about in our brains to the exclusion of the true God. That's how Christians have thought since there have been Christians. I want to take the time even beyond today, to say, let's think Christianly as Christians about Christian things, including worship. Okay, let's move on. Oh, I'm going to skip Revelation 4, 9 to 11, which we looked at 4, 8 a little while ago, but for the sake of time, I want to skip that. But I did want to talk about that because it talks about worship, worshiping the one true and living God. Number five, motivation number five, he can be known. Let's learn this about the Trinity, the triune God can be known. And if you think about it, knowing Him is related to worshiping Him, having a true knowledge of Him, but God can be known. He can be known, and it's a problem if He's not known. I'll start. You want the negative or the positive? I'll start with the negative. The negative is when God is not known, from a biblical perspective, He's not pleased. But when God is known from what his revelation says about himself, he is pleased. But I just want to point out to you through text after text after text after text, he can be known. The truth about God can be known. Hosea chapter 4 verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. God has a case against even his professing people because, among other things, he says there's no knowledge of him in the land. And don't think for a second that they didn't have Bibles or scrolls. But they're, they're not thinking rightly about them. Then the positive, Hosea 6.6, 6, For I delight, that's what we want to hear from God, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. Oh, how do we know about loyalty? And in the knowledge, here's how, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God delights when His people have a true knowledge of Him. And if the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is true, and we're going to see that it is, even in days ahead, God is delighted. God is happy. God is pleased. God won't hold a case against us. Colossians chapter 1 has a prayer for Christians to grow spiritually. There's one thing in there that Christians forget about sometimes. Maybe it's because we think, once we know that knowledge may lead to arrogance, we think ignorance is awesome. <laughs> Not a good look. Knowledge may lead to arrogance, <laughs> but it doesn't mean ignorance is a virtue. <laughs> okay? Knowledge is good and important. How about Colossians 1? I'm going to rudely interrupt Paul's prayer that comes in verse 9. But in verse 10, he says, So that you will walk, he's praying for Christians, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. What a great way to pray for people, by the way. Their spiritual growth, their maturity. But here's how he ends it in verse 10. And 
increasing in the knowledge of God. Apparently, God can be known. In fact, it's one of the ways to grow spiritually. I didn't say it's the only way to grow spiritually, but it's one of the ways to grow spiritually, to be ever-increasing in a right understanding of who God is. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, ever so quickly, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Get this, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Oh, I wonder how it's going to come. Grace and peace from God? This is great. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. So God, this is virtuous. God, God must be known. God can be known. It's a blessing to know God. Now, before we move on to the next one, as a person who's trying to be careful, um, I also want to acknowledge that we can know God truly, but that doesn't mean we can know God comprehensively. We'll talk more about that. It doesn't mean we can know God as God knows things. He's infinite. He's all-wise all-powerful, the sovereign, and the list could go on. So we can know God. Here's what we do in theology. We make a careful distinction. And remember, as R.C. Sproul says, everyone's a theologian. You have a good understanding of God or a bad understanding of God, or hopefully it's growing in your understanding of God. So as a growing theologian, I'm going to say, you know what? We can, we can know God truly. But based upon what we also know about God from the Bible, we don't know as God knows. Because he's the all-knowing, self-sufficient, independent, immutable one. As John Calvin puts it, you may or may not like Calvin, but I think he's right here. Revelation is accommodated discourse. Even baby talk in which God must descend far beneath his loftiness. It's a pretty helpful image. Creator, creature. He condescends, not condescending in a negative way, but he stoops down because he's kind and gracious and he speaks baby talk to us. But what he says is true. But let's make sure we understand he's different from us. Some of you come here just for fancy theological words, so I'll give you two of them. I don't think any of you do and I'm glad for that. But theologians talk about ek Typal knowledge, creaturely knowledge, E-C-T-Y-P-A-L, creaturely knowledge. Creaturely knowledge is that knowledge revealed by God and accommodated to our finite capacities. We're not infinite. Bonus question is, what's the other word? It's archetypal knowledge. I had a quick answer myself lest somebody want more prizes from the gift store or something like that. But see, we're not, we're, we're not, we're new to this party, but it's been going on for a while where we've got to try to think these things through lest we sound like we're not Christians. Ectypal knowledge, it's our knowledge. Archetypal is God knowing as only God can know. 
Only God he possesses. Only knowledge he could possess. Okay, we're going to move on to number six. We are half done. We got done first hour and we were done before this service started, I promise. So we're going to go a little faster on this. Number six, motivate, sixth motivation for learning about the Trinity. And that is to err is human. To err is human. What a great Bible verse that's not a Bible verse. <laughs> it's just a saying and I'm not going to finish it. But to err is human. Yeah, right? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I love that hymn and I hate that hymn because I know how it ends and the guy who wrote it denies the Trinity at the end of his life. We are prone to wonder. To err is human. If there's only one God, it's easy to know the truth about Him because there's only one truth about Him. But at the same time, there are a lot of different ways to get it wrong. There are lots and lots of different, I almost said countless, but it's probably not countless. There's a lot of ways to get God wrong. And so we don't want to do that, but there are lots and lots and lots and lots of errors. Let me give you some categories of errors. And this is something I'm going to say for a different day when we want to learn about this. There's the one kind of category when it comes to the Trinity. It's the new Christian who's sincere, knows a few things. And I've been this Christian, most of you have been this Christian, a new, sincere Christian who's going to err, and they're going to say, oh, i got to figure it out. God is like an egg. Yolk, shell, white, and we say, sit down. No, no, we're, we're nice, and we say, well, here's what we say. That's interesting. <laughs> God is not like an egg. The shell is not God. The white is not God, and the yolk is not God. There's only one God. He's not made up of three different parts. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is God. And so we've got to help people along and say, I get it. We know you learned that in Sunday school, but not at Omaha Bible Church. <sighs> Ever again, at least. God is not like an egg. That's a, it would actually equate to an ancient heresy. Oh, but he's like water. And we've got steam, and we've got liquid, and we've got ice. No, that also relates to another ancient heresy. That's not what we're talking. Oh, pie. I like pie. So you've got one piece is the son, one piece, a third is the father, another's No, because one piece is not the pie. They all break down. They all break down. But again, if you're one of those sincere Christians, j- joking aside, you, you, I think you're in the right place. I've made those mistakes because we're trying to figure this out. But one reason I want to do this series and have it move beyond this is to talk about why some of those things actually relate to, relate to ancient heresies that Christians who've gone before us have literally been martyred over. And it would be a really good idea to pay, for us to pay attention to the water under the bridge. There are other errors by opponents of Christianity, like Islam. Islam is an opponent of Christianity. And Islam says that Christianity is polytheistic. We believe in three gods, which we don't. We're monotheistic. So it's misrepresenting us and accusing us of something. But Islam is Unitarian, not Trinitarian. So we're different religions. Not only that, Islam also makes a huge error because they say, get this, they say that we Christians believe in the Trinity and this is what we believe by Trinity. Father, Son, and Mary. So in the Quran, which poses a big problem for the truthfulness of the Quran, in the Quran it teaches that Christians believe in the Trinity 
And the Trinity is Father, Son, and Mary. And let me go out on a limb and say, no Christian ever on planet Earth has ever believed the Trinity is Father, Son, and Mary. But that's what the Quran says we believe. It's not what we believe. If you want more resources on that, I'm happy to share resources on that. So we, 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 better, we better know something about the errors because to err is human. There are also, maybe I'll just do, oh, two more. There are also heretics. Now, her, by heretics, we don't just mean people we don't agree with. Heretics are those in church history who profess to be Christians, but they deny major Christian doctrines, important Christian doctrines. So we have an, a, a, a heretic like Arius who denies that Jesus is the eternal son and teaches that Jesus before creation submitted to the father. That's an Arian heresy. We should talk about that. Uh, Sibelius is another heretic. Oh, there's another category of people. Let's talk about one more category of people. And that would be people who are like us, evangelicals. They mean well, but maybe they're not big fans of history and they end up teaching heresies, even using the Bible because they're not paying attention to history. We're going to talk about some of those. And if you're not aware right now, the debates are raging. So if you're not aware, you're living under a rock or you're super sanctified, may the Lord bless you. But they're just old debates. So we're going to talk about those in the days ahead. I'm just trying to get you motivated about errors. Okay, let's move on to number seven. Number seven, another motivation, and that would be contending assumes it. Another motivation for knowing about the Trinity would be contending assumes that we know something. Jude chapter one, because there's only one chapter, Jude three, verse three, contend. It means struggle literally. It's a, it's a battle word. We're going to fight. We don't want to be fighting fundamentalists who are contentious and always want to fight about everything. But Jude does mandate Christians like you and like me. It is something we're called to do, to contend, to fight for, what does he say in Jude 3? Earnestly, that helps us, for the faith, which was once and for all handed down to the saints. So it is important that we know something about the faith. Otherwise, we can't contend for it. What do you know about the faith? What do you know about the Trinity? If you don't know much, I want to help you. But if you don't know much, you can't be a good contender. Let's be better contenders. So, and I know God is sovereign and he will do what he wants to do. But so from a human perspective, we can pass the baton on to the next generation and have what we call Christian actually be Christian. So that we would earnestly contend for the faith. What do you say? Let's, let's do a little experiment. What do you say to Mormons who say, that they believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, so glad you're a brother or sister in Christ. Well, they don't mean what you mean. What do you say to someone who says, well, I believe in the Trinity. The Father is in the Old Testament, and then the Father becomes the Son in the New Testament, and at Pentecost, He becomes the Holy Spirit. Well, that would be an ancient heresy. But if you don't know that, you say, oh, I'm so glad we're both Christians. Because you say you believe in the Trinity and I say I believe in the Trinity. Never mind, it's modalism. You can't contend for the faith. And I'm not here to scold you or even guilt you. But if you can't contend for the faith, you can't do what Christians are supposed to do. And so let's get motivated and then do some learning. What do you say to evangelicals? People in our camp 
people like Bruce Ware, whose books we used to carry in our bookstore, who I've shared meals together with, who's a fine gentleman, who says that ultimate glory goes to the Father alone. Who says that the Father alone is supreme within the Godhead. I hope you'd say, well, that's Arianism and that's a heresy. Huh, this is alive and well. This is a big deal. It's a huge big deal. And it doesn't mean you have to be at the forefront of the contending, but you got to be a contender. I don't want to be at the forefront of the contending, but I got to be a contender. It is hot, hot, hot right now. And we're watching people side with those who are promoting ancient heresies, you know, because they're socially conservative, and that's good. Well, it's fine to be socially conservative, but don't welcome their heresy like so many people are doing because it's one of their heroes. Okay, let's move on. More about those things in another message. And I realize I'm being controversial and stirring the pot, but it's on purpose because I want you to realize there's a problem. And the problem isn't out there across the street in a different sphere. It's actually in our sphere. Okay, we're going to do 8, 9, and 10. Number 8, we're going to learn about Trinitarianism because discipleship demands it. Because discipleship demands it. In the Great Commission, we know about making disciples, don't we? All authority has been given to me, chapter 28, verse 18. And then Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And he goes on, I'm going to stop there for now. So notice, we're to make a learner, a follower learner, and we're to baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. But then there's ongoing teaching. So even right there, it's just something awesome about the Trinity, by the way. But even right there, 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 you got some splaining to do. Even with a brand new Christian, a brand new disciple, and then ongoingly. And I say you got some splaining to do because it's one thing to be baptized at a religious ceremonial cleansing washing bath, because that's what it is, symbolic, in the name of God, because that's what it is. So it would be one thing to say it's in the name of the Father. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? What are you going to do when that person says, what does that mean? That used to be the Father, then became the Son, then becomes the Holy... No. Tritheism. So love God with 33 and a third percent of your heart, 33... No, that's ridiculous. But part of discipleship, teaching, training, is to be able to teach somebody something. And how about this? Let me go, let me confess something. If I don't understand something, it's really hard for me to teach it. <laughs> right? I, I mean, I'm pretty good at faking things sometimes, but <laughs> no, I'm not actually. If you don't understand something, and it doesn't mean you have to understand it like an academic. But if you don't understand something, it's really hard for you to teach something to someone. And we won't take the time to go there, but I would at least mentally ask you to go back to that Deuteronomy chapter 6 text. This is actually something that we're to be teaching our children about all the time. The one true and living God. Deuteronomy 6 talks about it. Discipleship even there if you have children. But even if you don't, you understand the principle. I would hope I, if I said to you, by the time we're done with this, can you tell me what Trinitarianism is? 
You could say something simple, something basic. But you could say there's one eternal God who's always been God and always will be God. Existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That'd be good. And we could draw a chart. We won't do it today. Maybe on a different day to try to explain it. That it's not a contradiction. We didn't say one God and three gods. That would be illogical. It's actually not illogical. We didn't say one person and three persons. That would be illogical. There's one God. There's a certain way we say it as Christians. One God eternally existing. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Man, I'm looking forward to this. Hope you are as well. Hope you are as well. You know, our church's confession says something great about this, and then we'll move on to 9 and 10. The Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. Now, that's not inspired. That's many Christians getting together and making a statement. You want to know what it means to commune with God? You better know something about the Trinity. That's just ABCs. Okay, we're going to do 9 and 10. Number 9 could be super long and it won't be. Number 9, salvation is Trinitarian. Salvation is Trinitarian. Ephesians 1 is a go-to great text. Before the foundation of the world, God decrees the triune God. If you want to use fancy Latin theological labels, it is the pactum salutis. It is the covenant of redemption. It is this, again, to use fancy words, the intra-Trinitarian covenant that the Father predestines, sends the Son who provides the redemptive work, and it is applied by the Spirit who seals us. All three working together, absolutely amazing. Ephesians chapter 1, it's no wonder Paul blesses God. Blessed be the God and Father. This is verse 3 of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, just as He, the Father, chose us in Him, the Son, before the foundation of the world. For the sake of time, I'll drop down to verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood. So it's the Son, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Again, for the sake of time, down to verse 13, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Extraordinary. Amazing. Our salvation is Trinitarian. Again, I'm not going to take the time to go there, but we could even go further and talk about the assurance of salvation and the security of our salvation. Romans chapter 8. I have assurance because the triune God is for me according to His perfect redemptive plan. I've got more quotes from more theologians. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to skip it for now. I've got more technical stuff. I'm going to skip it for now. We will see in the days ahead that while there is distinction emphasized, Father does this, Son does this, Spirit does this, we're also going to see that what they do, they do together. That's why it's a great trick question to ask people. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, there are three right answers. (laughs) Or one. God did. But I will prove to you that the Father raised Him from the dead. I will prove to you that the Son raised Himself. And I will prove to you that the Spirit raised Him from the dead. Because the triune God works as one. 
And if you want to use fancy terms, inseparable operations. Oh man, I'm giving you way too much today. This is like theology for breakfast. This is great. There's nothing more important to learn about than God. Final one, final one. I I, I got there. Didn't false promise. Number 10, he is mysterious. He is mysterious. There are texts that talk about mystery. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to tap out for now for for this morning. But I'm going to quote someone who was a Christian who's in heaven now who gave his life to understanding these kind of things. So let's, oh, he figured it out. No. Thoroughgoing Trinitarian contend for one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's what Louis Burkhoff says. The Trinity is a mystery. Far beyond our comprehension. Doesn't mean we can't know anything. Doesn't mean we can't know things truly. But it's far beyond our comprehension. He also says the church. So that was his, that was his opinion. As a historical writer, he concludes the church confesses the Trinity to be a mystery beyond the comprehension of man. I love the mystery. I love the mystery based upon what I know about the mystery. Eventually, I have to push my chair away from the desk and say, I don't get it. I get a lot of things but I don't understand comprehensively. And then you know what I want to do? To borrow from that song that we sing sometimes here, even though it's talking about a different emphasis, I want to learn all I can, push my chair away from the table. But based upon what I do understand, I want to say to other people like you, and I want you to be able to say to other people like us, come, come and behold the wondrous mystery. No one like him. No one like our great God, the one true and living God, the one who was and is and who is to come, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this great exercise in understanding or at least getting motivated to understand better who you are. And we look forward to looking at passages like the baptism of Jesus where... The Father speaking from heaven and the Son is there and the Spirit descends on Him. We look forward to those kinds of texts to learn more, to understand better so that we might be men and women and boys and girls who can stand in a long line of other Christians who've gone before us to positively promote, but also to boldly contend when necessary. I pray, hopefully we all pray this morning for the health of the church at large that many congregations would be willing to learn and relearn perhaps things we've forgotten about that we ought not have forgotten about, that there would be good days ahead in the life of the church in this country and beyond, uh, that we would return to what has been biblical but has been lost by so many, uh, enliven us, motivate us, move us toward that end, and do so, yes, for our good and for the good of those who will come after us, but also for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.